Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. And today we are <laughs> today we are talking The Land Across by Gene Wolfe. Yes, we certainly are. Uh this was what, 2013? Uh yeah, 2013, 2014, around then. Was I have it right here. Oh, come on. I can't read a fucking title page. Uh, 2013, yes. All right. 2013. So not that old of a book. It's one of his more recent works. I think he has one that came out after this that I haven't, I haven't gotten a chance to read yet. Ah. Now, as we were preparing for the show... Uh, Nathan Carson stopped by my Facebook page to say this is one of the ones that he was not able to finish, even though he's a Gene Wolfe super fan. Yes, Nathan Carson, the drummer of Witchmouth. Yes, and author of Star Creek. Yes. Get it at your Amazon affiliate. Many, many other functions. Yep. He's also an old school D&D aficionado and has recently been playing Car Wars, which mm -hmm. I approve of. As I'm recently getting back into Car Wars. Yeah. We'll not be playing Car Wars on the channel. Yeah, no, we won't. It's hard. Nate actually might be my evil twin across the country. And we might he might have to live on the West Coast forever, and I might have to live on the East Coast forever because of the uh the polar repulsion. Uh-huh. So I think that that is uh but since you're evil, that makes Nathan Carson your good twin. Well, he's a drummer, and that makes him evil automatically. Ah. Uh, what do you call a guy who hangs out with musicians? <laughs> I'm not even going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Nate. <laughs> so, this isn't microphones of Carson. It's microphones of Wolf this week. Microphones of Gene Wolf. And, uh, so yeah, what... It's my turn to ask, what'd you think of this? Oh, you're going to ask me? <laughs> really, I liked it. Um, the only other wolf that I've read is Endangered Species, because you sent it to me. I love and that it, it's It's a great collection, but I think I liked it even. I liked Land Across even more. This book is just, it's so delightfully strange. There's no other way to describe it. I've spent probably the past two weeks trying to figure out what genre I would try to put this in. It's impossible. There's so many different things that he draws from in, in any given book, but especially this book. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about it is this book was a lot more on the weird fiction side than a lot of his other novels have been. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a lot of his novels are, they're never what they seem, but you have um, science fiction novels, you have uh, dying earth novels, you have um, pirate novels, you have a, a there's, there's even a, a weird science fiction mystery um, Cthulhu mashup. Uh, but this one is like almost straight up weird fiction. You have, 
have a lot of the genres that you normally associate with the pulps are contained in this. Um, you, know, you have a hard-boiled detective, spy thriller, um, geez, uh, you know, ghost stories. Mm -hmm. um, all, all of that wrapped up into this one thing that like bends genre as it needs to. I'm going to go with quirky comedy. It was also, it was also funny. You're right. There, there were a lot of moments where, well, I don't know if I was supposed to laugh, but I did. There's uh -oh. even a, a Rocky and Bullwinkle reference in there. Of course. You can't, you can't, it, where, where was, uh, Boris Badenov from? I think it was from Russia. Uh, but, you know, the, this country, this unnamed country, well, and we'll get into all that in a second, was definitely an Eastern Bloc country at one point in its yeah. existence. I mean, they, they talk about the communists, so mm -hmm. you know that. Now, just a quick, quick plot synopsis. Um, the story concerns a travel writer who's been trying to get into this unnamed Eastern Bloc country to write a travel book because he thinks it's a would be a really cool place to visit. And I, I think that being mysterious and, and unknown is part of the drive to get him to write this book. But it's almost impossible to get into this country. Yeah, you get I mean, on a plane, and it's the plane just bypasses the country altogether. Even though your itinerary says there's a layover here, right? It's almost as if the country itself does not want outsiders to visit to come inside. Yes, uh, definitely falls under that you know, weird place because once once he arrives, it seems like it's at once ultra high tech even um oh ex german expressionist type of situation yeah it's definitely it's got like this it's oppressive and gene wolf has a way of making something seem so matter of fact and, and mundane that you almost forget that the, that this guy's in a horrible situation. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm laughing, but you know, he get he goes and the book starts out and you're in like this Kafka-esque nightmare of bureaucracy in a uh, Eastern European country mm -hmm. um, where everything has to be, um, triple checked with, with different departments that don't communicate with each other. His passport is taken and sent to the capital because it might be fake, and but you can't tell if it's fake without a, a huge process, and he might get it back in a year or two. Right. He's put. He's he's arrested for it for unknown reason. You don't know why he's arrested. I'm sure. If you dig deep into the text, you could figure out why. But on the surface, he's he's arrested just for coming into the country and being American, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And Be, uh, being a foreigner, being an outsider, and, and he's 
instead of going to prison, they have very good, very good um, system, which does not cost money, where the prisoner is put up in a house with a local, and is that local's responsibility, and he has to spend the night in this guy's house. His name is uh, uh, Cleon. He has to spend the night in this guy's house every night, or Cleon gets shot. Right. He can do. He's free to do whatever the fuck he wants to do during the day. Yes. But he has to sleep in Cleon's house. Or Cleon gets shot. And you almost get the feeling that this is how, not only are they punishing the the intruder, but this is how they punish dissidents in the in their in in the town. Right. <laughs> because now they're both prisoners, basically, mm-hmm. with this with this arrangement. Um, because Cleon basically has to kiss Grafton. That's the character's name, the main character. He has to kiss Grafton's ass. Or Grafton could just leave and, and he gets shot. Right. Right. Because they, they can't stop him from leaving. They figure that Grafton's compassion or respect for life is enough to keep Cleon from getting shot. Because they don't have any uh, excuse to shoot him other than the fact that Grafton's not there. Right. And uh, Cleon is not the nicest guy and doesn't really um, avail himself to to Grafton in that way. Of course, Grafton ends up having an affair with Cleon's wife. Right. I was about to say that there were other incentives for him to stay there. Um, yeah. So he has a, a an affair with Cleon's wife, Martia, who ends up being the uh, second lead for a while, for as long as he's in the initial situation she, mm. she's his partner i i like how they're driving through the town as soon as they they release him from processing or whatever and there's no street signs none of the buildings are marked there's no streets really there's no yeah it's just like alleys and just where people drive in between the buildings yeah like each building uh, residential or commercial building takes up a block. Right. So a big house is a big block. A small house is a small block. Right. And uh, Grafton comments like, well, how do you find anybody's house if you need to? Why would anyone want to see a house? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like the architecture oppresses you. Everything is designed. It's It's like this western fantasy of what um what it was like behind the 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 iron curtain right it's all it's all the sets from uh the cabinet of caligari yeah and and (laughs) it's true i mean everything's at weird angles and shit yeah you picture this this town um and and yeah it's crazy um i'm picturing like this brutal blocky concrete architecture uh, amidst like old, old, beautiful houses, mm-hmm. um, with just crazy, crazy streets with no, no um, floor plan, no city planning at all. Right, and and uh, even the maps are wrong. Um, at the beginning, he's trying to look at a map mm-hmm. of of the country, and the, the, 
It confuses our enemies. Yeah, the official's like, oh, you do not want maps. The maps confuses the end. When the Turks come, it confuses them. <laughs> so, I, and and not only does that like weird in the modern sense, but it, this weirdness goes back a long time. I mean, mm. it just they make their maps wrong, and have been making their maps wrong since the Turks. Yes. That's a long time. <laughs> um, now, one interesting is I kind of like see it as this reverse Wizard of Oz where Grafton is on the train and everything's in Technicolor. He falls asleep, and as soon as he wakes up in the land across, everything's black and white. Yeah. But like a really dour black and white. Yeah. Let's let's not I wouldn't say really dour, I would say just kind of just kind of washed monochrome. Because, you know, the characters that you meet is, yeah, it's like an oppressive Eastern Bloc kind of stereotypical government. But everybody that lives there, is, is they're fine with it and you get just go about their business. Well, right. You get the minutia of day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. where, you know, cooking is cooking. If you're cooking in, in uh, Berlin... New York City or mm -hmm. Moscow, you're still cooking, and clubbing is clubbing, apparently. Right? Yeah, lots of lots of cafes and clubs <laughs> in this book. Right. Um, so Cleon's wife, Martia, has pretty much attached herself to him. Yeah, she functions as his guide, um, his lover, his cousin, his cousin, which is apparently the local colloquialism for prostitute. Right. Which is, it's it's strange that they have this since there's no visitors. Right. But they have this tradition of, 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 right. of, of catering to visitors. Right. <laughs> Foreigners come in and the local girl attaches herself and she always says, this is my cousin. And they buy her hats and clothes and things. And, and, and she, uses up, she uses up a good bit of Grafton's money that he still had on, on his purse. Right. And, and you think probably most of the traffic, the tourism traffic comes from Germany because everybody keeps on thinking that Grafton is German. Even when he says he's American, uh, they say, oh, so you're German. Well, they think he's German because he German is the only way he's found that he can communicate. He can communicate in German, but there is a scene where he's renting the willows. Mm hmm. And, and he, he goes, well, you know, I'm here in your country and uh, I'm American and I want to buy a place for when I get out of my situation. And the guy just says, oh, so you're German. <laughs> and he just rolls with it. Right. And nothing is as it appears in this story. Yeah. Now, that's a, a mark of, of Gene Wolfe. Is, um, everything is, is occluded. And, and everything is symbolic of something else. Now, he's not there, what, maybe two days or something like that before Martia takes him to meet a friend of hers. That's the first day. That the happens first day. on the first day where they, they go and they meet this guy who is, he's a character. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's the guy that knows everything. He's like, oh, yes, yes, um. Uh, I know some diplomatic folks. Uh, I wrote a book once. He's the he's the guy, the local guy. Everybody knows him. 
that has done everything. Right. He is, uh, hold on. I have his name here. Volatane. Volatane. Or, yeah, Volatane. And it's, it's kind of hard to tell exactly where Volatane fits into this because he was a doctor. Mm. He practiced medicine for a while. Uh, he was a lawyer. He practiced um, law for, what, three years? And now he's like the devil for friends and family. Um, and he's also an amateur treasure hunter. Yes. And it is Volatane who has the idea that Grafton should rent the Willows so the three of them can hunt for the lost treasure of an ancestor. Well, not Volatane's ancestor. Volatane's ancestor locked up the guy. Right. He was a judge. It's it's kind of it's a cool story. It's a cool little story of the history of this house mm-hmm. and this this mysterious treasure. Right. And and Volatane himself is an interesting character in the fact that he is this you know, high-ranking member of society. And not even he really knows why he is a high-ranking member of society. Right. Uh, he's connected, though. I mean, well, he says he's connected. Right. There's no there's no evidence to suggest that he's connected to anybody. He's just... He's the NPC who always has the skills that uh, the PCs require that they didn't right. take. Right. <laughs> um. Yeah, but the thing about him, he's definitely, there's something going on with him uh, because he doesn't want people in his house for very long. Um, and they, they don't go anywhere but the room, the main room where he's in. As a matter of fact, he goes from, when he opens a door to go into the other room to get something, he opens it enough for him to get in and goes in and closes it behind him. Right. He doesn't <laughs> want anybody to know what he really does. Right, and he doesn't let when Grafton has been uh, beat up by Cleon. Mm-hmm. He keeps him in the foyer and just him the foyer, him up patches there. him up and won't let him spend the night. Mm-hmm. He's not allowed. He's like, but on the other hand, he's very secretive, but he's also very generous because he's like, here you go, here's a blanket, here's some sheets. Would you like a couple of nice fluffy pillows as well? Right. Yeah, I mean, he, you can like, go sleep on the floor at the Willows. I'll give you everything you need. But you gotta. I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. Right. So yeah, he and there's there's definitely something up with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, it's Gene Wolfe, and it could be any number of things. Right. I have my suspicions. Now, Grafton has decided that um, he might like to stay at the Willows because it is a really nice house. The Willows And he house. got really cheap. Yeah, because it's haunted, apparently. Right. Or so, is Right. <laughs> so he's been picking up the stuff. He's been picking up stuff to fix it. You know, he's thinking about, you know, just living there and, and whatnot whenever he can get away from Cleon. Because, you know, he, he's gotten here in... Even though he's in this bureaucratic nightmare, he really likes the country. Yeah, he's it's it's strange because he seems that he it, to you and me this country seems like an absolute nightmare. Mm-hmm. I would I would hate it there, right? Um, but he likes it. Uh, he doesn't come out and say he likes it, and he often says about how he wants to go home. 
Mm-hmm. But he, but then again, he also says it imparts that um, you know, in a way, America is worse off than these guys are because in America, <clears throat> no one trusts anybody. Right. Anything, anything bad can happen, and here it's too regulated for for bad stuff to happen. Right. Very regulated, um, regimented society, but everybody seems to just kind of be all casual. They fall into they fall into place. Where in America, where you have your regulations, it's because the government knows what's good for you. Right. Mm-hmm. The sugar, the whole sugar thing. Right. It was. There's this thing where he. They were in a cafe. And uh, there were there were sugar bowls bowls of sugar on the table, and you can't have that in America, he says, uh, because anybody could put anything into those bowls. It could be cocaine, it could be rat poison, it could be sand, whatever, mm-hmm. and people will do it in America. And you know, if you think about it, yes, <laughs> people would do that shit here, right? If you so do they, that, if you do that shit there, the jaka comes and they fucking shoot you in the street. Yeah, that's the J-A-K-A, the secret police. Mm-hmm. So so in America, you have this this uh, government oversight because now you, you only have sugar packets to protect everyone. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, unsaid, there's probably also a sugar packet lobby <laughs> that, yes. that helped make that regulation. But over here, there's this um, trust or fear. Right. <laughs> Now, there's not to say that there's no dissension in this country at all, because as Grafton is working on uh, the, the Willows, he is visited by a trio of men who, uh, because he speaks English, decide to kidnap him and force him to record radio broadcasts for their revolutionary movement. Yes, but it's not a really a revolutionary movement, because they don't want to overthrow the government. No, they, they just want to... Just throw their ideas out there and think that their ideas being out there are going to change the government. Yes, they think that their, uh, like you said, their what their rhetoric is going to somehow, um, like like a, in a William S. Burroughs ish fashion, replace the oppressive rhetoric of the state, like a virus. If they just get it out there long enough, enough people will hear it and. And if they think that it has any sort of, of legitimacy to it, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get an American to broadcast their shit in English so that people will be fooled into thinking Americans back our philosophy. Right. <laughs> now, Grafton being kidnapped, he wants to get out, and they've told him that, yes, we know the secret police monitor our transmissions. So he leaves them clues in the transmissions to find him and rescue him. Pretty clever. Which is pretty clever, except that he gets thrown in jail. Well, because he... Shot and thrown in jail. Because he attacks a cop or something. uh, And they don't know the difference. Right. But yeah, he gets gets thrown in jail. And uh, he's put in with a roommate who's also an American, supposedly. Um, Radhouse, right? Russ Russell Radhouse, who is a purveyor of fine voodoo dolls. Yes, luxury voodoo dolls. Yeah, they're 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 artisanal voodoo dolls, literally. But 
unlike some, his actually seemed to work. Yeah, his work. So you have like this, basically it's, it's ingenious, the, the, the methodology of coming up with this and what it is in the book. So you have a blank doll mm-hmm. um, that is, has photoreceptors on it. And when you put a photo, when you pass the image of who you want the voodoo doll to represent through a special lens with light, enough light, um, the photoreceptors pick up the face and turn into that person, that, you know, a, a doll of that person. of that person, yes. And then it also comes with a book of spells. Right. Apparently the spells work. My, my first Necronomicon. Yeah. <laughs> Red House Voodoo for Dummies uses a gigantic version of one of his own dolls to escape from prison. And it's interesting how he does that. So backtracking just a little bit because it's kind of important. Mm-hmm. There's this mysterious man in black figure. Right. Who has appeared several times. Um, it, he appears in what amounts to be um, Vlad the Impaler's summer home. Right. His vacation house. <laughs> yes. It's, it's it's the Vlad the Impaler winter palace. <laughs> Less impaling here. More skiing. Yes. Which is on a, um, an island. Um, an in island in the lake. lake. Um, he appears to Grafton in the willows the night he was beat up and starts a fire for him mm-hmm. and, and walks him home. And it's really strange because um, the man in black can control wolves mm-hmm. and has the ability to create doorways, apparently. And Russ Radhouse knows about the man in black because he basically summoned him. Right. To the prison room, and the man in black brought him a voodoo doll. So he right. get the fuck out. Right. It's speculated that the man in black may be Vlad the Impaler himself. Uh, there's definitely dream evidence of that. Yes. But the man in black never really talks. He doesn't talk, and, and really he doesn't do much aside from menace mm. and help. Right. And, and both at the same time. Right. And and really, once um, Radhouse escapes from prison, the man in black kind of fades out of the picture. Mm-hmm. The man in black kind of fades out of the picture, and the entire story shifts, and the real action of the book starts taking place. Yeah, so now, you've up until this point, it's been kind of this, like, Kafka-esque, maybe um, Henry James-ish mashup right ghost mm-hmm. stories and, and and uh and and paranoia <laughs> and now it goes full on like uh dashel hammett kind of dashel hammett ian fleming type of thing going on um he get grafton gets out gets let out. He's taken to the secret police headquarters and assigned a year has passed. A year has passed. Right. It's not very clear. You kind of almost have to piece it together, but a year has passed. Right. He's picked up some of the language. Right. uh, Enough to communicate. So here's the thing. 
You got to you got to wonder because this is all going to go part of like the subtext of 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 the book, which you're going to have to read multiple times to figure out. Grafton has an editor. That's the only other person we know that he is in contact with. Right? It's his mm-hmm. editor in New York, and she knows he's writing a travel book in this country. Right? Yeah. She has not heard Heidner hear from him in a year. Right. Why is nobody looking for him? Nobody can get into this country. It's just, it just strikes me as odd. So Grafton is let out of prison. He's taken to secret police headquarters. He's assigned a partner named Nala. Yeah, she she is kind of his new keeper mm-hmm. slash partner. Like she's she's a like middle management. Yeah, she's like a special agent, secret police but type that, of person. Yeah. And so she takes responsibility for him because he knows Rat House because they've been in the cell together for a year and they're both Americans. And she's working the case of his escape and she thinks keeping him close, well, he probably knew. It's kind of a 48 hours kind of thing going on there that he's let out of prison because he spent the most time with Rat House. Right. And he should he should have a good bead on how to find it. Right. And he can go back at any time. Right. Radhouse, um, the, the big clue or the big lead they have is Radhouse has a wife who's considerably younger than he is. And they were both arrested together but sent to different prisons. Correct. Um, Radhouse was in this prison and his wife gets sent to a much nicer prison uh, for women. Which is um, low security. Very low security. <laughs> not, not that this one had great security either, because you know he like basically walked out. Well, he walked out and with the help of the man in the black. Right. That's Rosalie Radhouse. Yes, is, is the much younger one. He's sixty-eight, and she's in her twenties. Mm-hmm. Now, Grafton almost becomes this uh, Richard Castle kind of character. Reminds me a lot of the quirky police procedurals on television, like Castle and The Mentalist and things like that. Bones. Bones, where you have this one character who is, as some people put it, the magic white boy, (laughs) who shouldn't be involved with any of this stuff. There's no inkling that this person could be a detective, but turns out they're a mighty fine detective. Right. Um, yeah. He goes from zero to 60 pretty quickly um, in terms of his detection abilities, which calls into question his, his claim that he is merely a travel writer. Well, he, he says often that his father was in the state department. Yes. Um, and he's traveled around different places. That's why he speaks German, because they spent a lot of time in Germany. Speaks German, French, and a little bit of Japanese. Right. Now, the thing that, that strikes me, as you say, is kind of weird, but Grafton never uses any skills 
outside of you know, just your standard writer stuff. You know, he just goes in and he's able to talk to people and just find out things because I guess he has a that kind of face. He never really talks about what he himself looks like. Uh, you you kind of get the feeling he's a good looking man. Um, women are throwing themselves at him. Oh God, literally throwing themselves at him. Martia <laughs> is like you know she wants to shack up. She wants him to tire her like you know within hours of his arrival. Yes. Um, he gets he gets out of jail. Gets hooked up with Nala. Nala wants some tiring too. <laughs> and uh, Rosalie <laughs> even is is. Um, even offering herself to him for his aid. And I don't know. It's almost like he's, it's almost like he's still dreaming in a way because you know, the whole book starts when he falls asleep. Yes. And everything just goes his way. So perfectly, you know, all the, the, the powerful authority figure woman is, you know, you will get in my bed. Yeah, it's definitely got that. Well, I mean, it's that's why I'm saying it's got like that pulp feel to it, where mm-hmm. you know he is that that Marty Stew kind of guy, right? But it's all very tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. It's not. He doesn't have that that confidence and that swagger for the most part that you find in those characters. Like a Conan or or Tarzan or you know Marlowe, right? You know, you have like a a. It's almost an accidental um, Marty Sunis, <laughs> where things seem to go his way because he because he's. It could be because he's writing the book. Right. <laughs> Things are going his way. And, and he does leave out a lot. And he'll say it. He'll he'll start a conversation between two just, people and then just be like, well, you know how the rest of this goes. Or it's just too, the rest is unimportant. So you don't need to know about it. The rest it. is boring. Yeah. <laughs> and he does that a lot. So mm-hmm. he's definitely, you don't trust this guy's word. He's definitely an unreliable narrator. Right. And that's another Gene Wolf thing is his narrators are he's a master of creating these unreliable nar- narrators that pose as omniscient narrators. Because you want to believe him, you want to take him at face value, everything that happened the way he said it w- did. But there's like little things in there that kind of tell you maybe they didn't happen the way he said they did. And I think those, those incidents um, get more and more um, tall tales mm-hmm. um, as the book goes on. Because in the beginning, he gets beat up. Oh, he gets his, he gets the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. By Cleon. Right. And the, then the secret, the cops, the border guards do it first. Yep. I've never been kicked before. And then he gets the absolute shit kicked out of him by Cleon. So much so that he has to go to Volatine to get like stitched up and bandaged up and stuff. Then he gets the shit kicked out of him by the uh by the, by the kidnappers. Right. Well, and that's kind of almost a turning point. 
Because that's where he's kind of like saying, well, if there was only two of them, I could have taken them. Right. And that's where I really learned to fight. He like, so you can't punch people in the head because you'll hurt your knuckles. So you got to go for the soft parts of the throat. Right. It's like, okay, dude, how did you learn to fight with like that with a bag over your head? Well, it's it, that I think that was that's what it was the desperation of, you know, up until this point, he's been able to see everything. These guys changed the game and threw that fucking bag over his head. <laughs> I, I personally, I think that, um, and you, you had mentioned this, I don't know if it's a dream, this whole land across is a dream. Or if it's like the equivalent of um, like an alternate reality, mm-hmm. like um, like he's dead, like a Kafka esque Shambhala. <laughs> yeah, well, well um, there's just so mu- so many weird things going on that don't happen in in real. And I'm not just talking about coincidences, but like um, like the the supernatural stuff, which is very blasé. Yeah. Um, they, they come across a, a, a hand of glory. And it, it's also matter of fact. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's like like the, the Japanese folk tales that we were reading, but like hyper. Right. It's all of these, these supernatural and bizarre elements are thrown in here. They're told so matter of factly. Uh, that they almost become comical. Like, whereas a lot of writers would have, you know, the discovery of the voodoo doll on the cot. Um, yeah, that would have been the end of a Lovecraft story. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, same with, the, the same with the hand. Yeah. Um, the same that with the man the in big, black. That would have been the big reveal that, like, caused, caused the protagonist to faint. Mm-hmm. And But in here, it's just like, it's so matter of fact, it's like hyper real and mm-hmm. it like becomes part of the scenery where it, it stands out because it's so matter of fact. I think one of the that, things that, that sells it, sense. I think one of the things that sells the matter of factness and sell really sells the whole story is that hyper casual travel writer tone that he takes throughout the entire book. I've, I've read a couple of travel logs back when I was in high school, one in particular, Iron and Silk, by a fellow named Mark Salzman. Um, watched a couple of the Michael Palin uh, travel series on PBS. And the scripts for the Michael Palin series are very similar to this book. All the narration is you know focused directly at the viewer and... It is. It's written very casual. Yeah, and he definitely he he, he breaks the fourth wall, mm. um, so to speak, all the time when he addresses the reader directly. Mm-hmm. You probably already know where I'm going with this, right? That kind of thing. But I think he he somehow on the on the train, um, when he fell asleep, that he didn't wake up at all and and that he's like yeah like you said he's like in some weird afterlife mm-hmm. um he's, he's he's in a uh eastern block kunlun <laughs> <laughs> but now I, 
having read some Gene Wolfe and knowing that Gene Wolfe is heavy into like um, Gnosticism and and like Kabbalesque spirituality. Not I don't know if he is as a as a person, but his writing definitely has that in it. Um, I'm wondering that if like the land across because the land across it's clever because uh, Transylvania, mm-hmm. which is what you're supposed to think this is, literally translates into the land across the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, this place is across mountains. It's a land across mountains. Um, and but because it's so vague, the land across across could be across anything. Right. That could be across the veil of death. Mm-hmm. Across the veil of sleep. Right, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the only destination. Yep, that's um, just was he, he, comes, he. He goes back. What he was expecting. Yeah, he. I mean, he, at the end, he goes back, but he's changed. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if, like, this is like some weird, like, uh, Dante, Dante esque um, journey through like some weird afterlife. That is a possibility. I mean, it definitely occurs in in stages, and he essentially meets the leader of the land across. Yeah, who who looks strangely like his father throughout the whole book. He keeps on seeing this uh, one guy. He calls him the third border guard because that's where he first saw him was as a border guard, um, and he looks like his father. Right. He also looks like this face on all these propaganda posters. Right. And I, I picture, it's funny because in my mind, I'm picturing um, um, for Bradley from from uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Really? Yeah, that's, you know, little gray hair, big, you know, big, powerful guy, mm-hmm. severe, severe right. mustache. And kind of that the big brother. Yeah, exactly. And that's and there's there's a little bit of 1984 action going on there with Big Brother. Yeah. Now the the thing is like nobody else until the very end sees the leader. Mm-hmm. The leader pops up everywhere, uh, and you don't know he's the leader until right. the very end. Uh, he pops up everywhere, and he's always looking like his father. But he his countenance kind of changes a little bit. You know, sometimes he's older. Right. Um, sometimes it's a little off. And I'm, I wonder if other people uh, see the leader in their own way. Mm-hmm. Because there's a point where uh, he's getting being taken initially to the JAKA headquarters. Right. Um, being transferred from prison. And he's in the back. And the big tradition is uh, no one rides in the passenger seat in police car. It's it's stated that yet the the uh, driver is talking to somebody in the passenger seat of the police car who uh, Grafton cannot see. Right. So something's there. Right. The leader. The leader is this kind of weird kind of presence underlying everything. Yeah. Like the the, the leader could. It's like um, and I know you haven't read it. But like Ubik, where um, every everyone kept on having um, the, guy, the 
their boss runs at her, mm-hmm. appearing to them at different stages, and he was everywhere. Or like in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, where Palmer Eldritch became like some um, meta presence who can insert himself anywhere into reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like that. I don't know if it's that's like severe, but it's almost kind of like that because he shows up whenever he wants to and when right. it's convenient. He, I mean, he he literally is a Deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. And it, one thing to uh, support one of your theories concerning the identity of the leader is that the description also kind of reminds me a little bit of Gary Oldman in Dracula. Yeah, and and there's the other thing is. Um, dr- uh, Dracula is only mentioned once in the text, I think, and mm-hmm. and it's not by name; it's by implication. But um, a lot of the the reviews, uh, maybe even the back of the book, talks about um, Dracula being being here, and I'm wondering if if it could be that. Um, another thing I was thinking about was that Dracula is now the supreme dictator of Transylvania and uh, just wants to keep it the way he wants it. Kind of, right. kind of um, like um, Vampire Hunter D where, where Dracula was the, the, the leader for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes of, you know, that it was a little bit more harsh there than he is here. Cause he's, he's a presence, but it's a real subtle presence. Right. He's kind of locked the country in this, this, the fantasy stasis trope. Yeah. Where, you know, maybe one or two people have computers. Nobody has a phone. Nobody really has a television. Nobody, and nobody cares. It's like they know about these things, but they don't care about them. Right. Very few cars. Most people still get by, you know, on foot or by wagon. Bicycle bicycle, anything like this. And it's almost like this country has been this way for hundreds of years. Yeah, it's 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 timeless. They do kind of mention how um, it has changed a bit. How Grafton remarks about how um, these guys, these people's ancestors lived under like oppressive regimes mm-hmm. you know i think he was talking about the communists there though i think he was talking about uh, well maybe i thought he was talking about like during the time of the turkish wars of oh, the, the medieval period yeah where where they were oppressed by tepes and his like um and now that they are supposedly you know modernized and and under a dictatorship, um, those people back there were, were freer than than the modern people are. Right, right. Overall, I, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was I thought it was funny. Uh, I thought it was a an interesting, unusual kind of procedural crime story. But I would say I would say that the end ended up being kind of weak. And how every everything got tied up with a nice big neat bow. Or did it? Or did it? Or did it? And the only thing that that makes you question or did it 
is if you sit back and you think, did, did any did any of this actually occur? Well, it's weird. And, and you almost have to question the thing that made me want to question everything. Mm. Everything is there's just one line at the end. Um, hold on. So I'll get to it. Where he's on he's on the, the way home. He's 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 going to Germany, he's on the plane, and he meets this minor character, um, the girl with the red pen. Right. Who shows up twice before. Mm-hmm. Um and, and he interacted with once, barely. And uh they start they start getting really intimate on the plane. Right. Um, they and start he, talking to each other and, and talking he, to each other like with a with a familiarity that just doesn't fit with the rest of the narrative. He says um, she she won this poetry competition, and there, he wanted to talk to her about shit. Where is it? Um, they're talking about how she, how well she speaks. Oh, hold on, sorry. Jeopardy music playing. She learned English. Yeah, but it's before that. Oh. Um, he, he just says that they're talking about nothing, more or less, because he didn't want to talk about him being him and her being her. I, I wanted to get it per, like the actual quote. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and the way he says it, it makes you think that like everything you just read is like completely wrong. Right. That he made up. He, this was all a dream on the train, a dream on the train, or like he, like he's not who he said he was because right. why would he care about talking about him being him or him being who he is, which is, I think what it was. Right. It, it just, it rubbed me like, what? the hell yeah he didn't want to talk about either one of them which which maybe leads me to believe that they were going to the same end destination and he saw her on the train yeah possibly and didn't just didn't mention it to us and ended up she became part of his dream uh here it is uh pretty soon i got the feeling it was very all right, since it meant we would not have to talk about her being her and me being me. It's just a weird, it's just weird to have that in there. What the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. One mystery to figure out. There's a lot of mysteries. And, they, and they, then they go <laughs> off and they live happily more. ever after. Yeah, they're getting, they're, he decides to she has a scholarship to study at Harvard for a year. So right. So he sells he's his move to Boston. Right. He, he does move to Boston. But moves to Boston with her. And then when her year is up, they're going to um, they're gonna go travel traveling. a little bit to Greece or maybe Italy. And, oh, no. They're going to go to South America where he's going to work on another, another travel. Right. And then go back to visit her family in the land across where he can write the actual book he set out to write in the first place. Right. Right. It's like he, he wrote this book to get you interested in the travel book that he's going to write. Yeah. But this book, there's so many weird things going on and what's frustrating. Okay. Now I'm going to rant. 
what's frustrating about it is that, um, and I think Nate, Nate, Nate Carson um, might have hit it on the head that this, I don't think this was a very popular Gene Wolfe book in, in just in general terms. Um, if you go, Gene Wolfe has like a rabid following on, on the internet. Uh, there's, you should be able to, to look at um, people's thoughts on almost anything Gene Wolfe. You should be able to get it. And there's a very, there's a, a policy of information on this particular book that's out there. Um, people just aren't talking about it. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's just because it's such a stumper. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I really don't think it's much of a stumper because, you know, the, the mystery, the mystery of the end, like, you know, what does that mean? I don't have to talk me being me and her being her. It doesn't really make too much difference to me. Oh, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't drop this like mystery of like, what the fuck is he talking about sort of thing. It just, it's just kind of the way it is, you know? Yeah. But that's maybe, maybe it's because he has that, that the whole love at first sight kind of comfortableness about it. He doesn't have to talk about, you know, what he just went through in the country and, you know, they don't have to talk about what she went through because he lived there for over a year. You know, he knows what her life was like. What he didn't know, he can piece together. You know, that's not important. You know, let's talk about the future. And he, he is going back, and he's going back as a uh, an employee of the JAKA. Yes. He is basically going back to be on the Trump cabinet. Mm, no, he took one class at the FBI. But it just seems like, seems like it's a... Almost like an excuse for a mysterious payroll, because they they do they wire him his salary directly, right? And, and they only ask they ask very little yeah. of him, right? Which is why I'm wondering if, if this is like now he's become like some sort of um, otherworldly agent, right? Because you know he he did overthrow you know a, a great evil in that country. Possibly. Single-handedly. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> that's the whole thing. Is that, did he really? Was, was who, the, there's this, this mysterious figure who's the leader of this cult called the right. Unholy. The uh, Unholy Way. The Unholy Way called the uh, Undead Dragon. Right. And he figures out who the Undead Dragon is. Mm-hmm. Supposedly. And, uh, and, Kills him. Sort of. Kind of. But maybe he did. <laughs> right. But you don't know. I mean, you can follow his logic, and it's kind of iffy. So you can accept that that particular character was the unholy dragon, or you could not accept it because he's not a reliable narrator. Now, here's an, here's an interesting tidbit. Is that it's the undead dragon is the leader of the unholy way. Yes. Dracul means dragon. Yes. 
and Dracula is yes, he's undead. Yeah, so maybe maybe he just killed Dracula. Maybe, maybe. Although I really don't see Dracula. Although, if I recall correctly, the origin of Dracula is very similar to what happened to the undead dragon. In terms of... Uh, didn't he cast himself off the parapets of his castle? At the... Uh, I, that might be just in the movie. Well, it might be a reference to the movie. <laughs> I don't remember. I, I haven't... It's been a while. Yeah, I don't. Stoke, know. It's been a while since Stoker. I don't know if somebody should you should comment on this and let us know if Stoker actually delved into the origin like that, or if that was a uh, pure Coppola. Yeah, or or Mr. Wolf himself, if he's listening, because I know he's out there somewhere. He'll yeah. tell write in and tell us how wrong we are. You can find the email. Yeah, that's on right. the podcast mean, page. Mean Wolf. If you listen to this, please answer some of these questions. It's killing me. And give us permission to read the letter on the air. Yes. Um, now, the the all all that aside, and, and the mystery of, of who did what to whom, and who is what, all pales. Um, well, I won't say pales, but it's all um, put into perspective by an afterward. That um, Gene Wolfe wrote, or an, an appendix, which I'm going to actually read because it is kind of important. Okay. This was written in, you figure, 2012, 2013, around then. Uh, this is a lecture, and you do not have to read it. I just want to say something about dictators and dictatorships. Dictators get in when democracy sucks, the elected governments do a bad job one after another, or they are so crooked, the elections no longer matter and nobody cares. Are dictators bad? Sure, but some are worse than others. Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot were about as bad as they come, but there have been whole, a whole bunch of others. They were bad too, but look at the governments they replaced and the governs, governments that replaced them. If you do not want a dictatorship here, vote. But be careful who you vote for. And be careful about who gets on that ballot. Democracy means rule by the people. And if the people will not do the job, well, somebody is going to step in and do it for them. Spreading democracy is a really good idea, and I am all for it. Just keep in mind that ruling is work. It means staying informed and making the tough choices. And if the people do not want to do the work of ruling, democracy will not work. It is a lot easier to shoot a dictator than it is to replace one with something better. A little foreshadowing, huh? Yeah, a lot of foreshadowing. Uh, it's weird because during the whole book, uh, he, he constantly alludes to how America isn't as great um, as its reputation um, says it is. Mm -hmm. That um, that things in this country uh, work better than they do in America in the dictatorship. And I think, you know, um, part of that is, is Gene Wolfe's trying to warn his readers and, uh, because he is who he is and because his, his books are so, um, 
pithy. Mm-hmm. Um, he just had to come out and, and actually spell it out for us at the end, just in case you didn't get the message while you were reading it. Right. And that's about all the time we have for today. Uh, tune in next week when we'll be discussing the doom that came to Gotham. Yes, Mike Mignola does Batman. Yeah. And until then, keep 30 luck points. Yes, and if you can, join the JAKA. It's the only way out. That's right. Get you some good loving and a badge and gun. That's right. All right. Peace out. Later.